Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading with us this morning. We will be in Psalm 46 today, and and I encourage everyone to uh, keep Matt in prayer today. He'll be slipping out a little bit early this morning. He's been asked to come and fill the pulpit at our sister church of Macedonia just up the road here, and so he'll be slipping out just a little bit, but be praying for him as he brings God's word uh, to our sister church this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 46 today as we continue in this series, Anxious for nothing and as we look around us day by day we can find all kinds of reasons to be anxious to be fearful to be at least uneasy with what's happening in our world we look back at the history of the world as given to us in the word of god and we find that there have always been all kinds of reasons for god's people to be anxious And yet, someone has counted 365 times in the Word of God that we're commanded not to fear. One for each day of the year, someone has supposed. I haven't counted all those. You're free to do that in your time if you want to. I'm just going to take it as someone has quoted it. But we have great reason, as our series title has sang to us, to be a people who are literally anxious for nothing. And Psalm 46 that we're going to look at today speaks to a people who had great reason for anxiety and yet were once again called by God not to be anxious, not to be fearful, but to trust in the Lord who says to us, do not fear. So today, I've entitled today's message, The Call to the Anxious. Psalm 46 calls us out of our anxiety and into a greater place of trust and reliance on the Lord. Uh, This psalm has sometimes been called Luther's psalm because Martin Luther, that great reformer, he loved Psalm 46. There was one particular occasion on which uh, Luther's companions came to him and they were concerned about enemies that were coming against Luther seeking to take his life. And they were coming to warn him about the impending danger upon his life. And Luther, in his own characteristic way, responded like this. He said, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. That's classic Luther. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. Let's sing the 46th psalm together. And not be afraid. Here's our key truth for today. God's track record. His faithfulness. Gives us great reason. Really gives us every reason. To trust him. In the midst of our troubles. That's what we're looking at today. Is not a trust that comes after God has resolved our troubles. But the kind of trust that resides right in the midst of the storm. The kind of trust that resides right in the midst of the war. The kind of trust that resides right there and is even strengthened in the midst of the trouble. And so really we see here kind of three admonitions, three aspects of this call to the anxious today. The first is don't fear. 
Why are we called not to fear? Because our God is present with us to protect us. Because our God is present with us to protect us. From the very beginning, the psalmist here says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, if you look down at your footnotes for verse 1, you'll probably see that that word, a uh, very present help in trouble, could also be, could also be translated a well-proved help in trouble. God's track record is one of utter and complete faithfulness. He has never once failed his people. We have failed him many, many times, but God has never come up short because he is perfectly good and he has all the resources necessary to care for us. We'll talk some more about those resources in just a few minutes. But the first admonition, the first part of this call to us today as we're living in an anxiety-filled world is not to fear because of the presence of our God with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. How many times in scriptures has he, has he promised never to leave us or to forsake us? Church, we need to be reminded this morning that God's greatest gift to us is His own presence with us. So many times we have the temptation to look to the hand of God. We're looking for a handout from God when God's greatest gift that He could possibly give is His presence with us. The promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. That He is dwelling with us. In fact, He is dwelling in us in the Holy Spirit if we have trusted Christ and been redeemed from our sins. David Dixon said, God's presence among His people will not exempt them from trouble. That's so important that we understand that today. God's presence among His people will not exempt them from trouble, but from perdition in trouble. He will not keep the bush from burning but from being consumed. That is so good. As we think back to Exodus 3 and what God did there in front of a fearful Moses as the bush was a flame and yet not consumed, that is how our lives are so often in this walk with the Lord. So many days our lives are aflame with various troubles, and yet the Lord has promised us that we will not be consumed. We will not be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We will not be defeated. We already have the victory that Christ won for us at the cross. Much of the Christian life is learning to walk in that victory in the midst of the battles. So God's greatest gift is his own presence with us. This also reminds us that as God's children, we need fear him and nothing else. I would say to us, church, if we would learn as as the church today to fear God rightly, we would not be afraid of anything that's going on around us. How could Martin Luther, as they were seeking to hunt him down and take his life, how could he say, let's just sing the 46th Psalm? It seems almost ridiculous to a lost and dying world. What good is that going to do? The good it will do is it will remind us of the God who is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in troubled times, who is well-proved in His faithfulness. We are called upon to fear Him. This is the beginning of wisdom. We are called upon to fear Him. In Psalm 34, 
Germans as the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We've heard that so many times, haven't we? Taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. We need to learn the fear of the Lord that we might not walk in fear toward our circumstances or toward man. Or toward our lack because we know that our lack will be supplied by our faithful father. A case in point we could look at this morning is this one known as Korah in number 16. In fact, Psalm 46 in the title says this is a psalm written to the choir master of the sons of Korah. Now, we don't know whether the sons of Korah wrote this or if this was given to the sons of Korah to be sung by them. They were given the task often of leading God's people in worship. But regardless, they are connected to this psalm. But if you trace their lineage back, it takes you back to number 16. And Korah is the man who led a rebellion against Moses. Basically, one day Korah and some of his companions come to Moses and he basically says, hey, Moses, who do you think you are? We're all God's holy people. And yet you have exalted yourself above us as some kind of a leader. And he was basically saying, Moses, you're not a very good leader. I would be a better leader. And he's leading an insurrection against Moses. And Moses responds In utter humility, he bows down on his face before the Lord at this insurrection. And Moses says this in number 16, verse 5. Moses said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And so he set up a little contest and said, in the morning, we're both going to make an offering to the Lord. We're both going to burn incense before the Lord. And the Lord will accept the offering of one of us and the other one he will not accept. And so the next morning, Korah and all of his companions come with their censers to burn the incense, to make the offering before God, to prove their worthiness of leading God's people. And Moses sends one man, his brother Aaron, with one censer. They have a multiple number. Aaron comes out as one man to bring a similar offering. And they offer their incense to the Lord And the Lord speaks forth in that moment and says, everyone needs to get away from Korah and his companions. Because I'm about to show who is my chosen leader and who is not. And in that moment, the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all the rebellious insurrectionists. They were swallowed up by the earth and the rest of God's people who saw the earth open up and swallow this rebellious man and his company. They all fled away in fear. You would as well, by the way, and your pastor definitely would. If I see the earth open up and swallow someone, I am hightailing it out of there. 
That's what happened in number 16. And God in his judgment was also proving that Moses was his chosen leader. Even in that number 16, the plague breaks out against the people of God. And you see Aaron as a mediator running out in the midst of the plague with that censer to make atonement for the people that the plague might be stopped and that no more deaths might occur. These are faithful men of God who are trusting in the Lord. Moses in his humility does not try to defend himself does not try to make a name for himself, does not try to to show his spiritual resume. He simply bows before the Lord and trusts God to do for him what he could not do for himself. And that's what we must do as well. Reminding ourselves that God is with us. To protect us, that he will fight our battles for us. As long as we're trusting in him. So the first part of this call is for us not to fear. The second part of this call, beginning in verse verse 4, is that we are called upon to trust God. It's not enough for us just not to fear. We also must replace that fear with trust. Trusting God because we are recognizing that the Most High God is present with us to provide for us. So we've talked about the protection of God over his people. Now let's talk about the provision of God for his people. And there's lots of symbolic imagery here in, in these early verses of this psalm. There's, there's mountains that are being moved. There are seas that are surging and roaring. There's all kinds of, as Matt said earlier, there's a lot of chaos in this psalm in the early verses. And then God comes and his presence brings a peace and a stillness. He is the one who steals surging seas and in their place supplies sustaining streams. In Mark chapter 4, as the disciples were facing a storm there on the Sea of Galilee and they were fearing for their lives, they woke up Jesus and when he awoke, it says, he rebuked the wind and the sea and he said, peace be still and the wind ceased and there was great calm and the disciples said, who in the world is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. At his simple word, the storm was stopped. This is the same one who said in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think that same imagery is here in Psalm 46 verse 4, that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now the interesting thing about that verse is that Jerusalem had an oddity as a city. Most cities in those days were built alongside some kind of a river or a stream so that they would have a ready source of water. Jerusalem had no river nearby. It wasn't until the days of Hezekiah that Hezekiah he diverted a nearby stream and and brought it into the pool of Siloam so that there could be a, a ready water source for Jerusalem. And so here in in Psalm 46, when it says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Jerusalem was without its own river. And yet here God is reminding them he's the stream of living water that they needed. He is that overflowing well. He is the source of life for his people. 
So he doesn't just steal the, the surging seas and, and calm the raging storms and, and, the, and the floodwaters of our lives, but he seeks to replace that with a peace that goes beyond our understanding, to sustain us, to grow us. And again, not after the storm, but even in the midst of it, God is doing this work. It's what he's doing even now. This is the God who turns our trembling into trusting. The mountains here pictured being hurled into the sea as they would look upon uh, the great mountains in their area, Mount Sinai, Mount Hebron, and the various mountains, and they would see these as as these immovable fixtures upon the landscape. There's this picture here of mountains just simply being picked up and hurled into the sea. And and that's how we sometimes feel in our lives. That which seemed to be immovable now seems to have been radically moved. That health which we once enjoyed now seems to be fleeting. That job which once seemed to be so secure is not so anymore. That marriage relationship that once seemed to be rock solid is now seeming to be sitting on sinking sand. The things which once seemed immovable are moved, and yet in the midst of it we're reminded that God is not moved. He has not changed. He is steadfast. Therefore, God will help her When the morning dawns, Charles Spurgeon said Alps and Andes may tremble, but faith rests on a firmer basis and is not to be moved by swelling seas. Evil may ferment, wrath may boil and pride may foam, but the brave heart of holy confidence trembles not. There is, in every sense of reality, this truth that in the midst of your most difficult circumstances, there is a peace in Christ that will surpass whatever it is that you're going through. But the key to unlocking that peace is leaning in and trust in the Lord, in reminding yourself of His constant protection and His ever-present provision in your life, that He has not left you, that His presence is with you, and that that is what brings us to that place of greater trust. A case in point, we see Jacob in Genesis 31. As Grant reminded us earlier, Jacob was kind of a mess of a man. Of all the Old Testament patriarchs, he was probably the least likable His very name meant deceiver, and he lived up to his name. That's why God gave him the new name, uh, Israel. But he does, as Grant said, often refer back to him as Jacob, reminding him of the redeeming work that God had done in his life. Jacob deceived his own brother in stealing his birthright. Jacob deceived his own father. Jacob deceived his own father-in-law, and that's where we come to in Genesis 31. You remember Jacob had worked seven years in order to take as his wife uh, Laban's daughter Rachel. But Laban played a trick on, on Jacob and instead gave him his daughter Leah in the marriage ceremony. And then said, well, if you'll work seven more years, then I'll give you Rachel as well. Why Jacob thought it was a good idea to marry sisters, I'm not really sure. But anyway, we'll leave that for another day. But he was tricked by his father-in-law, worked for his father-in-law for a t- some total of about 20 years, two decades he put in. 
And through the course of that time, Jacob began to work a scheme. He was a schemer. And he began to work this scheme by which he would take the very best of his father-in-law's flocks and make them his own. We come to Genesis 31 and, and Laban has become aware of Jacob's treachery and is beginning to hunt him. And Jacob is fleeing from his father-in-law as he once did from the very brother from whom he sold the birthright. Jacob is once again on the run and running away. And yet in that moment, God met him on his journey. God met him in his flight. God met him in the midst of his fear. And Jacob learned something about God in one of his scariest moments. And he tells it in Genesis 31 as he's speaking to his father-in-law once their th- things have been reconciled. In the midst of that reconciliation, Jacob says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and notice what he calls him, the fear of Isaac. If he had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. I would have been left with nothing if God had not been on my side. God saw my affliction, Jacob says, and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. God was fighting for Jacob in a way that, first of all, Jacob did not deserve. Jacob deserved the punishment that Laban was was seeking to bring to him because Jacob had been deceitful. He was deserving of whatever wrath would come to him. And yet God interceded in that moment. And again, did for Jacob what he could not do for himself. God fought his battle for him and provided for him in the midst of it. And so here in Genesis or in Psalm 46, this refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress of reminding ourselves that he's the God of Jacob. What it reminds us of is that he can be our God as well because we are no more worthy than Jacob was. We are sinners deserving of the wrath of God, but God in his infinite mercy comes pursuing us in love. He proved that at the cross. He comes and he does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. He fights our greatest battles for us so that we might be drawn in to a saving relationship with him. He is God with us. Finally, this morning, the first part of this call is not to fear. The second part is to trust God. And then verse 10 is this reminder that we've heard so many times that you see it on nearly every Christian calendar out there. This reminder to be still and know that he is God. And so the final reminder this morning is be still. The Lord is present in order to keep his promises to us. The psalmist here ties the end of this psalm to the very promises of God. Be still and know that I am God. We hear that all the time. But remember the rest of the verse when he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The very promise of God that his glory will be made known in all of the earth is tied to this command to us to be still. You see, His revelation 
reminds us of his reliability. Again and again and again, we see the reminders of God's faithfulness in the scriptures. Why is that? Because we need the reminder. Even in Sunday school this morning, in in the book of Revelation at the end, as we see this picture of, of Jesus coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it says he's called by this name, faithful and true. The reminders of God's faithfulness, His trustworthiness, are throughout the Scriptures. And it's proven in His Word over and over again. Joshua 21 says that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Folks, there's not a one of us that can say that. That not one word of all of our promises has ever failed. We've all, that we've been perfectly and utterly faithful to the words that have come out of our mouths none of us can say that but god has been all came to pass because god is faithful to his word but not just old testament new testament as well second corinthians 1 all the promises of god find their yes their amen literally in him that's why it's through him through christ that we utter our amen to god for his glory We remind ourselves all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. He is faithful to his word. But I want you to notice something here in Psalm 46. We hear again and again, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I'm God. And you'll probably notice as you look at your Bibles there that that is in quotation marks. So this is literally God speaking But I want to ask you to consider for a moment, who is God speaking to? Because we have this great tendency, as we do with so many things, to individualize and to personalize scriptures like this. But I would ask, as we look at the context of that statement, be still and know that I am God, that command, that imperative from Almighty God Who is God speaking to? Because we love to take that as an encouragement to us. And yet I would encourage you to see that we are not, as God's children, his first audience in that statement. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? I love be still knowing that I'm God. Don't mess with me here. Just stay with me for a minute. Notice what he says right after that statement. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. He didn't say I will be exalted in my children, though that's true. He says I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And what have we seen previously in this psalm? We've seen the picture of warring nations. We've seen here in this psalm what we've seen in recent days in the country of Afghanistan, a people at war tearing one another apart. And I want to say to us, church, I believe that that is primarily who God is talking to when he says, be still and know that I am God. So I'm not saying to you, don't take that personally. But what I'm saying is God's primary audience when he says, be still and know that I am God, is he is speaking to the lost and dying world. 
He is speaking to the nations that are raging in rebellion against Him. He is speaking to the Taliban that is, that is wreaking havoc upon the country of Afghanistan today. He is speaking to those in Sudan who have been engaging in genocide for a generation plus now. He is speaking to the rebellious all around the world, the world leaders who think that they are in control and saying, let me remind you who's actually in control. You see, church, before we take be still and know that I am God as a personal encouragement, we need to see that it is first a worldwide command. That the God who created the world is looking at the sin-ravaged world, seeing the wars and the devastations, and He is saying, be still. I'm God, you're not. I will be exalted, not you, earthly king, not you, earthly ruler. I will be exalted. And it will be so forever. He's reminding them here of his victory, which is both unmitigated and unquestionable. This picture where he says he breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. These weapons of war that brought such fear into the hearts of the people in that time. He says, I am going to decimate these. This was a, a picture in the Old Testament days. Oftentimes a victorious uh, general would gather all the weapons of war of his adversaries. He would gather all their bows and spears and, and swords and chariots and he would pile them in a heap and he would set them on fire. He would set them ablaze as a sign of his utter victory over his adversary. And that's what God is saying here. I am going to have an utter and complete victory over my adversaries. And God's people can find great hope in that. Then we can be still and know that he's God. When we understand that be still and know that he is God is first spoken to those who are living in utter rebellion against him. To those who have exalted themselves above the knowledge of God in their thinking and in their acting. Then when God says to his child, peace be still. We can know. That it's right for us. To obey. First Corinthians 15 reminds us death. Is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory that was won through the cross. Our greatest enemy, people of God, be reminded, is not a failing economy or a political ruler or our health, the challenges there. Our greatest enemy is that of sin and death. And God has thoroughly and completely defeated that enemy. And so then we trust that he will deal with all of the other enemies that might come against us. So like Luther, we can simply sing Psalm 46 and let the enemy do their worst. Case in point is Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in Isaiah 36 and 37. I really think this is the context of Psalm 46. It doesn't say 
what the context of this psalm was, but as you work through this psalm, it seems to be hearkening back to what God did in the days of King Hezekiah in, in, in Isaiah 36 and 37. This account is recorded three times in the Old Testament because God wants us to hear what God did in Hezekiah's day and be reminded of his utter faithfulness, his control and sovereignty over all things, and that he will accomplish what he has said he will do. You may remember the story. 722 B.C., the Assyrian army, the greatest world power of that time, came against Samaria, those northern ten tribes. This is, this is post uh, the, the split of God's people uh, after the days of Solomon. The northern ten tribes became located around the city of Samaria. And in 722 B.C., the king of Assyria came with his armies and utterly decimated Samaria. And those northern ten tribes were carried off into captivity, never to be heard from again. They were disseminated among the peoples of the world, never regathered. And as soon as he defeated those northern ten tribes, he began to set his sights on Jerusalem because Hezekiah had basically ticked off the king of Assyria. There was a day in which Hezekiah had paid tribute to the king of Assyria. He had sent basically tithes and offerings to the Assyrians in order to keep them, keep him, them on his good side that he would remain in their good favor, he had sent them uh, some taxation in order that, that they might not come against him. But Hezekiah had recently stopped that. He had stopped sending those offerings. And so as soon as the king of Assyria destroyed those northern ten tribes, he set his sights on Jerusalem. And so the picture in Isaiah 36 and 37 is of the mightiest army in all the world coming against the city of Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria sends word by a, a, a letter and a spokesman. He sends word to the people and he, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you the chance to surrender. Here's what's going to happen if you don't. If you don't surrender to me, you are going to be utterly destroyed because who has ever been able to save themselves from the Assyrians? We are undefeated. We are the world power. You saw what we did to Samaria. We're going to do the same to you. But we're going to give you a chance to surrender. But Hezekiah, trusting in the Lord, goes in and bows down before the Lord and he entrusts himself to God and he lays that battle before the Lord and, and, he, and he exhibits his trust in God. And the king of, of Assyria sends a letter to Hezekiah and says, who do you think you are? What God has ever delivered a nation from me? I've beaten everybody we've ever, ever come up against. Your God is no different. He begins to mock God. He begins to mock Hezekiah. But Hezekiah remained steadfast. And as the army of Assyria gathered around Jerusalem, and as they were facing a battle the very next morning in which, from man's perspective, they would surely be annihilated. There was no hope here that they would win this battle army to army. Hezekiah went and took that letter that he had received 
from the king of Assyria. He went into the temple and the Bible says he laid that letter out before the Lord and bowed on his face and he prayed. And this is the very first, this is the beginning of his prayer. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And from that point, he goes on to express his utter trust in God. And basically says to the Lord, God, if you don't deliver us, we're doomed. We've got nowhere else to look. We don't have an army that can meet this army. We are going to be overwhelmed unless you overcome on our behalf. And then Hezekiah went to bed, trusting in the Lord. As the king of Assyria was raging against God and his people, Hezekiah went to sleep, and the Bible says the next morning they awoke and discovered that the angel of the Lord, angel singular, by the way, the angel of the Lord had gone through the army of the Assyrians and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were dead in their tents. And Hezekiah never lifted a finger. 185,000 dead in their tents, so, so much so that the king of Assyria ran back home with his tail tucked between his legs. And that next season, as he was worshiping in the temple of his false gods, his own two sons came in and slaughtered him at the altar and ran away. And that was his demise. This king who exalted himself against the knowledge of the one true and living God, who said, no God has ever delivered his people from me, was slaughtered as he worshipped his own false God by his own children. And this was the judgment of God. The God who here in Psalm 46 is saying, be still and know that I'm God. Be still, you nations. And be still, my children. We don't have to rage. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to worry. The victory has already been won. Our God is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the God of all the kingdoms. Even those who utterly deny Him. And He is with us. Church, I'll leave you this morning with the final words of John Wesley that great preacher on his deathbed said the best of all is this God is with us whatever you are walking through right now child of God hear those words as you are dealing with that diagnosis as you are dealing with that broken marriage, as you are dealing with that rebellious child, as you are dealing with the possibility of losing your job, whatever it is that is burdening your heart, would you hear these simple words? He's with you. He's not left you or forsaken you. 
He has promised you both His protection and His provision. His promises are assured. He guaranteed them to us through the cross and the resurrection of our Savior. And so we really do have the opportunity to be anxious for nothing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the assurance that it brings. May we not just be hearers of this word and begin to make excuses for why we can't walk in this. May we instead look to you, our faithful God. You have never failed. You have promised us that there will be troubles for us in this life because we are in a sin-broken world. But you've promised to never leave us or forsake us, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That we need fear no evil because you are with us. And so, Father, I pray as we come to the close of this service today, Father, I pray that whatever is striking fear in our hearts, whatever is causing anxiety in our souls, whatever is causing us to be afraid, may we simply take it and lay it on the altar before you, casting all our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us and you are with us. We entrust ourselves to you as Hezekiah did in the face of the Assyrian army. As Jacob did in the pursuit his father-in-law was making upon him. Even as Moses did in the face of Korah's rebellion, we entrust ourselves to you, almighty God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. May we respond in faith today in Jesus' name.